0: Well, hello out there to anyone listening. This is your boy, G-Money Clip, coming at you with a quick apology for the sound quality on this episode. We thought we had taken some steps to correct the phasing issue that we had last time, and it turns out that we've still got it. And in fact, it gets a little worse as the episode goes along. So if you can just kind of bear with us as we get this sort of thing sorted out. I don't know, maybe we can get it to work. So without any further ado, let's get this thing started. They're a bunch of fucking amateurs. Well, hello out there to anyone listening. This is Onion Ring Sasquatch ORS at the Movies, coming back at you once again. This is a podcast where we ruin movies scene by scene and forget to give spoiler warnings. This is your host, your boy, G-Money Clip. With me again, as always, is Mr. Thornton Mellon. Hello, everybody! Thanks for coming back over and, I, and doing this again. And I didn't taking... fumble
1: enough on the Battlefield Earth review. I earned a spot back. Yeah, yeah well, that
0: and you wanted to take your revenge on me, apparently, with this movie. <laughs> If you saw or heard our Battlefield Earth review, there were spoilers at the beginning. (laughs) Is it a spoiler for a movie 20 years old? Is it a spoiler if the movie doesn't have a plot? (laughs) (laughs) Just to let folks know what's been going on, we are in the process of relaunching our YouTube channel. We've been putting our stuff up in podcast form. You can check it out at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're on the Podcast Addict app. And pretty soon, once we get the videos we've redone the audio on, cleared through copyright, we will get those up on the YouTube channel. Big things been happening. We've been working on trying to get the Alloy Clowns as the ORS house band. Ooh! And uh, I I know that's that's a big get. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they don't find out about us and set the house on fire. So anyway, we got done with Battlefield Earth, and Thornton Mellon decided he wanted to do the Monkeys' 1968 movie head. The fucking monkeys! You're kidding me! <laughs> that Ozzy clip will never get old. This movie's a classic! Because you're a big Monkeys fan. And I remember when we saw the Jerky Boys movie in the theater way back in the day. And Ozzy comes out and starts mumbling, wandering around and <laughs> yells about the monkeys. We all, Everybody in the staff show just turned at you and looked at you. They're <laughs> we all laughing. It was great. That was the best part of the movie. Laughing at the fanboy in the room. Yeah, laughing at <laughs> Ozzy, making fun of the monkeys, and we know we all knew a Monkeys fan. So, let's find out how we got here. How did the Monkeys come to getting a movie made? We'll uh, go to our resident Monkeys expert, Mr. Thornton Mellon, who will give us a brief history of the Monkeys.
1: A brief history. Up how to the point done? where they're making this movie, 1968. I was trying to practice this a little bit in advance, see if I could keep this down to like under 10 minutes to get there. That's I'll why see we how have I editing. <laughs> It all starts basically in September of 1966. A TV show called The Monkees appears on NBC. And it's a TV show about a fictional band called The Monkees. TV show is put together by a couple of guys named Bob Rapleson and Bert Schneider. They were aspiring filmmakers and this was their first thing. They actually printed an ad as a casting call and over 400 people came down and auditioned. They hired four guys. Mickey Dolans, Michael Nesmith, Peter Tork, and Davy Jones star in the show. These guys were all actors and musicians. They were put together explicitly to be the band in the show. And on the show, they played themselves. So it wasn't Mickey Dolans playing the part of John Smith. They're put on the show with their own personas. That makes things a little bit interesting from the get-go that it's looking like these guys are actually the band. Complicate matters a little bit more. To promote the show, well, you have to have music in the show. So they hired a couple of guys, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. They wrote some songs, put some music together, had the Monkees perform the vocals on it, and they had music for the show. They put out a single called Last Train to Clarksville. TV show comes out in September. Follow that with a full album released in October of 1966. So you've got a TV show on Mondays on NBC a single on the radio called Last Train to Clarksville, and now a full album that acts as the soundtrack for the show. Then a strange thing happens when the records go to number one. So now this music that was put together for this TV show about a fake band called The Monkees suddenly has a band called The Monkees on the radio with a hit number one single and number one album.
0: So it's kind of like when the Archies did Sugar Sugar and all of a sudden that is a Exactly!
1: Big hit. That's all well and good up to a certain point but now things, they get a little hairy because as they put out this album, the guys start to look at this, Michael Nesmith in particular, they get a little uptight about, hey, now wait a minute, this makes it look like we're really this band and we're actually playing this music and we're kind of not okay with that. This kind of makes it look more authentic than it really is. One thing leads to another that over the course of the next several months, there's a little bit of an internal struggle that takes place where the guys start to fight for a little bit of musical autonomy in terms of If you're going to put this music out and you're going to make it look like we're the band, well, we should have a little something to say about that. And Mike Nesmith in particular, he wrote some songs and he was producing recordings that that showed up on those early records. But he really took the charge and kind of saying, hey, wait a minute, if we're, we're going to put this stuff out, then we should be involved in what's going on. They win control and get to the point where they start to release music that is recorded by themselves. So what happens is, as Mickey Dolenz likes to say, Pinocchio became a real boy. As this pretend band now becomes a real band, they're out on the road touring and actually playing concerts. This band on TV became a real band. So the name, the Monkeys.
0: People always kind of hold up. Here's the Monkeys. Here's the Beatles. The Beatles spelled their name funny. The Monkeys spelled their name funny. I imagine that was an intentional thing, kind of playing off of that. Or it was, it that was, a it was intentional trend. that way. Yeah,
1: and like other bands, like the Birds, mm-hmm. spelled it with a Y. The odd misspelling of the. Traditionally, no name. It was a thing for bands. The Wonders. Right. <laughs> the Oneaters. Eaters, yeah. <laughs> As word gets out, hey, this band that's on the radio, that they're having all these hit albums, they're making all this money. Word gets out to other industry guys that, oh, well, they're, they're not a real band. There starts to be a little bit of sour grapes from other musicians that you know kind of spiral over the course of time where they kind of get a bad reputation for being a fake band which plays into things as we get into Head a little bit later, the idea that they were a manufactured band. Whereas the Beatles are the fab four, the Monkees start to get the moniker the prefab four. That becomes the start of how they kind of get a bad rap for, you know, that everything was kind of given to them because, oh, well, you got a TV show and you get the free promotion that sure, everybody's going to love your records and want to go buy it, which isn't untrue, but there starts to be a lot of pushback against Monkees from outside sources at that point and, Outside of the eight-year-old demographic, they start to pull in through the show. A lot of folks start to dislike the monkeys as they go through the next couple of years. Is it
0: Confucius or is it Jean-Paul Sartre who said "Haters gonna hate"? (laughs) I mean, what are you gonna do? They're jelly. And I get how to understand that to a point when you sit there and you're working the clubs and you're busting your butt and then all of a sudden you see some guys just kind of in the right place at the right time. Right, like Everything right. Happens. I don't and, know and what it is. Mickey Dolenz kind of likes what it to is.
1: likes to say how how they basically captured lightning in the bottle with with the way everything came together and it was a perfect storm. What was really interesting from a timing perspective is that the Beatles start to now, you know, mid late '66, "Revolver" comes out and they're kind of taking the psychedelic route. And then in the following year, Sergeant Pepper, all of the kids that were growing up with the Beatles are starting to get a little bit older. And they're kind of leaving behind this gap that the monkeys kind of pulled into with that bubblegum pop feel that they came along. So they filled a gap that was being left behind by the Beatles as their style changed. So all of the younger kids that were still into that sound had a new band to kind of latch onto. I think it kind of feeds into some of the backlash that happens when you've got this very popular band that, is having all of the success and people feeling that they didn't pay their dues and they didn't have to struggle to get to where they are and all of that the tv show runs for two seasons 1966 to march of 1968 it wins two emmy awards for outstanding comedy series and director jim frawley wins uh, an emmy for outstanding directorial achievement in comedy it's very popular everybody kind of loves the show and, and it's great the music's number one on the radio selling all kinds of millions of albums and by 1968, there starts to be a little bit of burnout. The guys are starting to be a little fed up with the formula of the show that by the time the second season ends, they kind of go to NBC and pitch the idea, hey, we want to get away from the same old same that we've been doing for the last two seasons where it's very formulaic. Every show is kind of the same. We want to go in a different direction. And What they wanted to do was a bit of a variety show that ended up later on becoming something like Laugh-In. They pitched the idea to NBC to want to go in that direction. NBC balked and said, no, we want to stick with what's popular and what's working. And the guys basically said, no, we're not on board. We don't want to do that. So NBC canceled the show. What do you do at that point? Well, you go make a movie.
0: You make a movie after the TV show has been canceled.
1: (laughs) I think they actually started down the road of making the movie before the show was actually officially canceled, before it actually went off the air. But it was kind of the natural transition for these guys at that point, that here, the show's over, we're going to go make a movie now. Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, now they get their opportunity to go make their first movie, which is what they wanted to do in the first place. So they're still kind of tethered to the monkeys, and this is going to be their vehicle now to get their their initial filmmaking experience. They bring in an unknown guy at the time, brand new, named Jack Nicholson, to get on board here. Oh, I heard of him. He's that guy that hangs out at the
0: Laker games and yells at the referees.
1: (laughs) As we transition into talking about the movie, the big thing that starts here in in terms of pre-production is how it all got started with writing the movie. So the initial thing that they do is Mickey, Mike, Peter, and Davey, Bob uh, Ravelson, Burt Schneider, and Jack Nicholson. They go off to Ojai, California... And the story is that they basically sat around for a few days, smoking dope, getting stoned and talking into a running tape recorder, just spitting out ideas about what they wanted this movie to be about. Storylines and all these kind of hooks and things that could become the movie that basically Jack Nicholson then takes these tapes off, goes off and writes the movie.
0: So it was all from a bunch of druggies throwing random stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks? Pretty
1: much. What? No. No.
0: It certainly doesn't show. <laughs> That's
1: the story anyway. And the other thing that, that I've read along the way is the idea that, I forget if it was Bert or Bob, that between the two of them, kind of having the idea that yeah, this is the only movie I ever make. I want to make the most of it and get the best experience out of it. And so he kind of wanted to approach it from you know all angles and throw as much into it as he could, which gets you to the tagline of the movie. This was built as the most extraordinary adventure western comedy love story mystery drama musical documentary satire ever filmed so they literally were throwing everything into this movie
0: they were (laughs) and it probably is a situation where you should focus on one thing and do that well (laughs) instead of doing a bunch of things just to do them but why (laughs) this was
1: 1968
0: oh we'll get to that yeah (laughs) got a bit to say about 1968
1: So with all of that said, before we proceed, any questions?
0: Were the monkeys at the time perceived as a druggie band?
1: No. And as a matter of fact, that was a really important thing that plays into the thought process behind what they were trying to do with this movie. Their image was very, very carefully cultivated and maintained. Whereas you've got guys like uh, the Beatles and other musicians that would start to speak out about things like the Vietnam War that was starting to go, go on. In the late 60s, all this counterculture that starts to build up, the monkeys are kind of kept from speaking out. Well, sure. They're
0: a popular television show. Right. So the powers
1: that be sort of restrict them. No, 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 no. We don't talk about that stuff. You don't have an opinion. We're just the zany monkeys from, you know, the, the fun guys in the comedy on TV. Let's keep it that way. So we don't alienate anybody. We don't make anybody upset. Keep that clean, pristine image.
0: Yeah, there was a saying at the time in the in the late 60s, uh, the revolution will not be televised, is what they like to say. <laughs> right. It was just something where that stuff was not on TV at all. The only thing you would hear about the war would be on the news. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't have any commentary on television shows or anybody speaking out. Right. No, it's all different now.
1: And, and that was a very important thing, that as they got to making the movie, the one common thread that they wanted out of it is that they did not want to make an hour and a half version of the TV show. They wanted to do something completely different. They wanted to be a little bit more avant-garde about it. They wanted to be more artsy and they wanted to be not tethered to this image. And they went out of their way to kind of unshackle themselves from what the monkeys had become. They wanted to break that image and really kind of intentionally kicked back against it.
0: So you have hit records, a hit television show. You're wildly popular in a lot of circles. How could you possibly
1: fuck that up? <laughs> you make this movie. Let's find out. <laughs> the 1968 budget was 750 thousand. Based on the adjusted numbers, it's just under six million current money. Five million eight hundred ninety-five thousand eight hundred and forty dollars and fifty-two cents. Oh
0: fifty-two you gotta get fifty-two cents. <laughs> Every penny's up on that screen.
1: I got some quotes that I can pull out here from my, my monkey autobiographies. NERD! The idea came about when the four of us, plus Burt Schneider, Bob Rapelson, Jack Nicholson, and about two pounds of prime Hawaiian pot, we left the tape recorder running all the time, and between us, we wrote a whole film in two days. The idea was to blow the whole image, kill the monkeys. We wanted it to have lots of cliches, and it did. Plus, it had all the behind the scenes cliches, too. Like, we weren't going to get a credit for helping write it, that sort of thing.
0: No, two pounds of pot got the credit for writing.
1: (laughs) Generally having stream-of-consciousness sessions about television, movies, music, art, love, lust, good, bad, evil, life, and death.
0: That's beautiful, man.
1: Jack did a great job on the screenplay. To this day, I'm not sure what it's all about, and I'm not even sure if he is.
0: It was about lighting $750,000 on fire (laughs) and rolling in the ashes.
1: (laughs) From Michael Nesmith's autobiography... I was discussing with Bert, trying to get a sense of what kind of movie it would be. He described it to me as a wild gamble, and he said he thought it would either be recognized and revered or reviled and unsung. Love it or hate it were the only options. Millions would attend or no one would attend. He was right.
0: All right, so one important thing to remember, the year is 1968, so I've got a certainly not a complete list of some things that happened in 1968 just to kind of give you the backdrop of what was going on when they decided to make this movie. January 30th the Tet Offensive Viet Cong soldiers launch a major attack including attacking the United States Embassy in Saigon. If you've seen Full Metal Jacket the second half of the movie is very much revolving around the Tet Offensive. That's where Walter Cronkite gets on television and gives his opinion that the war in Vietnam is unwinnable. This is one of many events in this year that turned popular opinion against the war, and is a big shift in the whole hippie counterculture kind of things going on. February 1st, the execution of Nguyen Van Lem, which we will also cover here when we get into the movie. That's another big deal that was a big anti-war spark. Also in February of 1968, the Beatles take their trip to India. March 16th, the My Lai Massacre. So all kinds of fun news coming out of Vietnam. It's where United States soldiers went in and just slaughtered an entire village of civilians. The optics are bad when you do that. March 31st, President Lyndon Johnson announces he will not seek re-election. April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated in Memphis by James Earl Ray, and riots erupt nationwide. On April 11th, the Civil Rights Act of 1968 was signed. May 13th, there are student riots in Paris, and there are a million people marching in the streets. June 5th, Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan in Los Angeles after giving a speech. On July 13th, the Hong Kong flu pandemic starts. The outbreak will kill between one and four million people across the world between 1968 and 1969. August 22nd through the 30th, There are riots in Chicago occurring all week long at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, If you've ever seen Haskell Wexler's film Medium Cool, that was actually filmed while that was going on, and it's a big part of the background in that movie. And on November 5th, Richard Nixon is elected President of the United States. Also that year, at some point, United Artists pulls 11 Looney Tunes and Mary Melody's cartoons from circulation due to depictions of racist stereotypes. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar? Was 1968 the worst year until 2020?
1: Well, no, because the 70s all happened in between, and they were pretty shitty. But there was disco. (laughs) (laughs) Now, adding to that timeline for context, Head was filmed between February 15th and May 17th of 68. So spring of that year is when all of this business was going on with the movie. World premiere November 6th in New York City. West Coast premiered November 19th in L.A., and then grand opening November 20th.
0: Well, I imagine they've uh, set the stage. Now we should dig into the movie a little bit. So we kick off the movie, and right away we get no credits, which is very rare for a movie at that time. Nowadays, everybody does it. Every big action movie that comes out, you don't see the credits until the end. But 1968, that would have been kind of surprising. It just sort of starts.
1: See, these guys were trendsetters, man.
0: Shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! (laughs) In a movie like this that seems at times to be deliberately obtuse, you kind of look for what's the messages that they're trying to get across. What sort of symbolism are they doing? They aren't just going to come out and tell you something. It's going to be something hidden here. So when we have this opening scene with this bridge dedication, we got the mayor going up to the microphone. It keeps giving him feedback. So he's... Unable to communicate. This old man is unable to communicate with the people, man. The old man needs to get out of the way, man, and make way for the young generation, is what I would say normally, except that the police chief is able to go up to the microphone and it works just fine for him. So that message, that don't work. That kind of <laughs> falls apart. Well, shit, I don't know what it's about then.
1: Michael Nesmith said something that might be helpful here as this opening scene unfolds. The assisted suicide of the monkeys is kind of the intent here. The entire Monkeys project, from the first TV show to the recordings to the live concerts, all were sacrificed in the opening shot of the movie where the four of us jump off a bridge described as the largest man-made object in the world. Either because of or in spite of the fact that Pinocchio had started to come to life, Geppetto threw the marionette off that bridge.
0: Man, that's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they all jump off the bridge at the end. That's only Mickey that jumps off at the beginning. Which is one way to try to get off the movie. If you leap to your death, they would probably have to stop filming, right? <laughs> would we have been better off if they had had to shut down filming?
1: Well, not to spoil any anything from the end of the movie, but it's circular. So, so the whole idea is, I was re I was, I was listening in the commentary that the guys were given on the on the movie.
0: You know, you're a fucking mumbling, stuttering little fuck. You know that. That's why we have editing.
1: So the whole idea. I was listening in the commentary that the guys were given on the movie, the idea being at one point, you could start the movie at any point and watch it all the way through in a circle back to that same point again, and it'd be the exact same movie.
0: Oh, fire out, man. All righty, so Mickey jumps off the bridge. We go into our first musical number. Oh, one thing I forgot. The movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, opened April 3rd. Yes. So... We are greeted with 2001 Space Odyssey effects from the Stargate sequences. He goes swimming with mermaids, and the special effects turn the mermaids absolutely fucking frightening. It is terrifying seeing these bitches swimming around. Holy shit, it's scarier than the Stargate sequence in 2001. Seeing this,
1: there are probably people screaming and running out of the fucking. <laughs> <laughs> that solarizing technique was used heavily throughout this movie, yes. Yeah. yeah,
0: there are a couple times where they do it, but yeah, it starts off with that. Now, it's interesting. They must have seen 2001 and it, said,
1: do that. Yeah, right. It's interesting what you were just said about sending people screaming from the theater. One thing that's interesting to point out here, and I was having a hard time confirming this, both... Mickey and Davey in their books and along the way have kind of maintained that when this movie first came out, it had an R rating because of one particular scene that we'll get to a little bit later. The whole thing that they've kind of purported is that their younger crowd of fans for the monkeys couldn't get in to see it because of the restricted rating. But the movie today is rated G, and everything that I can find to dig up seems to reflect that it was always rated G. But there seems to be some argument about how it was when it first came out. But the, the idea of, of sending somebody screaming <laughs> from the opening images here, as I understand it, the younger crowd that would have been into seeing the monkeys didn't get to see it in the first place.
0: No, but the stoners who were having a bad trip and all of a sudden
1: see those evil looking mermaids. They wouldn't would have, have like, wanted to see the monkeys.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that too. 1968 was also the first year the rating system was put in place by the MPAA, and it's Plainly obvious. Whether they had had this rated R or rated G, they had no clue what they were doing with ratings in 1968. <laughs> Not unlike now. Jaws is PG.
1: Frozen is PG. What? <laughs> the musical number here is called the Porpoise Song, written by uh, Carol King and, and Jerry Goffin, sung by Mickey and Davy.
0: It seems like the soundtrack is a whole album full of deep tracks. It doesn't seem like there's anything that's a hit or would be a hit,
1: necessarily. That's kind of true. The Porpoise Song was the single that they released from the soundtrack, and I think it barely cracked the top 40. They were definitely on their way out as hitmakers. But it's interesting you say that, though, because the soundtrack for this movie, it's one of my favorite pieces of work that the Monkees put out. What's different about it is it's not that bubblegum pop. Now, this is the point in their career where they took control of things, and this is songs that they wrote and that they put together or picked for the movie because they wanted it that way. And even lyrically, with some of the stuff in the Porpoise song, it kind of fits the theme of the movie.
0: I'm not saying the music's bad, it's just that there's no song that reaches out and grabs you and says, Sure, sure. There's not a clear hit. That's going under the charts. It's right. almost like a side of the white album where there's just all these different styles of music. Definitely. And it's just kind of there. And it's nice, but those aren't the singles. That's not a Hey Jude. Right. We come out of the Porpoise Song into what appears to be a kissing contest, (laughs) where Jack Nicholson's girlfriend at the time is smooching each of the monkeys
1: in turn. The big thing in this scene that stands out is when she goes to kiss Davy, and then they play up the whole skies open up, the birds are flying, and the music plays. Because in the yeah, TV show, Davy was always, you know, with the starry-eyed. Well, Marie McCormick falling in love thought every I Thought week. so. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mike asks who the winner is, and she says even.
1: Right. Bitch, are you Mario And then he kind of leans over and yeah, yeah, quietly he... whispers, "Hey, you know, do not you come back later when the guys are when the guys are gone."
0: Yeah, she shoots
1: him down like. Are you kidding? Thing. <laughs> and that leads us
0: into the scene selection part of the movie.
1: Now the title sequence.
0: Yeah, it looks like it, uh, it looks like chapter selection on your DVD or Blu-ray, where it starts filling in little mini images of things that will be happening in the sequence in which they will happen in the movie. Right. So it's going on that.
1: The song's called "Diddy Diego." That's kind of the interesting thing visually that happens here is you get to see from this point now through the rest of the film. All of the individual scenes are all kind of now captured and shown to you in advance. Hey, here's what's coming, whether you know it or not. A little clip from each of the following scenes is now popped up on the screen as they sing the song that tells you what you're about to experience. The song and the lyrics, picking on on the theme song from the TV show now for the movie, Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And calling out now here in the lyrics, we're a manufactured image with no philosophies. So now as they go through describing the movie, we hope you'll like our story, although there isn't one. That is to say, there's many. That way there's more fun. Setting the stage for the fact that, no, 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 you don't just get a a single story plot. We've got lots of stories and lots of plots.
0: (laughs) And nothing spells fun more than watching a man get executed. Which is the last image they show, the real-life footage of Nguyen Van Lem getting shot in the head by a South Vietnamese general.
1: That was the arguable, arguable reason for why it got the R rating, or would have gotten the it R rating should It should have, did.
0: yes. It's, this is real footage. This is a real man being shot.
1: Nesmith says that uh, when they first had the initial screening, he had to get up and leave because it kind of shocked him so much that they threw that in there that yeah. he couldn't watch the rest of the movie that first time around. And
0: I mean, that just happened earlier that year. It's February 1st, I think. Right. That would have
1: been really fresh at the time. Michael Nesmith kind of said to Burt Schneider about it, hey, why is this in here? This seems like this is going to alienate a lot of people. This is going to turn a lot of people off. His reassurance was, no, 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 no. See, this is very anti-war. We're going to turn a lot of people with this. So that, you know, at this point now, very firmly trying to use this footage as the anti-war statement to say how horrible this is. Trying to have that political statement thrown into the mix of things here.
0: Eddie Adams took the still image that you see of that. He took a picture that actually captured the moment the bullet entered the guy's head, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for it in 1969. See, there's two sides to every story when you do something like that. You've got this film, this horrible image of a man being executed in the street. Mm -hmm. What they neglect to tell you is that the guy being executed had just killed a South Vietnamese colonel, his wife, six of their children, and the colonel's 80-year-old mother.
1: You're saying he deserved it.
0: I'm saying that (laughs) there's a reason they didn't just randomly pick somebody and decide to shoot him in the street, especially when somebody's running a film camera. For me, it's not the fact that they killed the guy so much as, no, there's no trial. We're just shooting him right here. This was not an innocent little lamb.
1: Mickey tells the story about how this particular scene being in the movie alienated a lot of the fans that did get to see it. A day or so after the film was released... Some you know, 15, 16-year-old girl comes up to him while he's at a gas station at a car wash and kind of starts berating him about how they were glorifying the war and condoning the killing. She thought that by showing the footage in the movie, they were somehow endorsing the war instead of being against it. So it really got his attention of how people weren't getting it. People were kind of making their own their own opinion of it and what it meant and why it was there.
0: I don't know how anybody could watch that and think it's pro-war. Sure. The stuff they're doing when they're talking about war is very obviously parody and satire, and, you know, it's a very strong anti-war message. She must have been stoned when she saw it. The next thing in the movie is a girl screaming. Some clever editing. And, and then you think, oh, she's screaming because of the murder. No! And it turns out, no, she's screaming because they're at a concert. We want the monkeys! The monkeys. Ready to come on. We yeah.
1: want the monkeys!
0: I don't know how this fan would have missed that point being made there as well. That She's, at least at the start, apparently screaming about this murder, like it's a horrible thing. I don't know. Over, <laughs> over the head. What I wrote down here is that the rhyme you mentioned before, hey, hey, we are the monkeys thing, it basically says that everything is fake and manufactured and don't expect a coherent everything. Right. Boy, do they deliver. <laughs> <laughs> I had some questions with that opening sequence.
1: And that's the thing, with, is, with, is with that many... they're basically telling you they're in on the joke with you now. Yeah. You say we're manufactured, that we all agree the money's in, we're made of tin, we're here to give you more. They're embracing and agreeing to the fact that they are who everybody says that they are, and now we're going to own it. We're taking it back.
0: And here, watch this guy get killed. Yeah. So I'm thinking, why have this in a monkey's movie? Why is this rated G? What have I taken my 12-year-old kid to see? (laughs) I don't get it. Is this movie made for anyone? I don't understand who the potential audience for this movie was.
1: I think they were reaching out to the hip counterculture hippie crowd. I guess the downfall and the mistake in doing that was that those were the guys that would offhandedly reject seeing yeah, this movie was gonna say, because are, it was the monkeys. Those
0: are the guys that had been dissing the monkeys for the last couple of years. Right. They aren't going to turn around all of a sudden and say, oh no, these guys are cool now. They're like, <laughs> whatever. It's the monkeys. The fucking monkeys. You're kidding me. All right. So now we get the war champ. They all come out dressed like male cheerleaders. And we get a lot of Vietnam flashbacks, man. A lot of stock footage and bullets flying and rockets shooting and name palm getting dropped and why is this
1: in a monkeys movie? <laughs> well, this is the transitional scene for what's coming next. Yeah. They do the little chant, give me a W! Yeah. Give me an A! Give me an R. What is the spell? Ah! And then we transition into, you know, so as we look at this as being the most extraordinary adventure, Western, comedy, love story, mystery, drama, musical, documentary, satire ever filmed, here's the dramatic war scene.
0: It's more like a World War I trench scene than a, a Vietnam scene. Because <laughs> they're all hanging out in trenches and they send Peter out for ammunition and he gets into a trench where he runs into Ray Nitschke, the Hall of Fame linebacker yeah. for the Green Bay Packers. They charge across the battlefield and end up at the concert that we were getting set up before they started the war sequence. (laughs) It's just like Memento trying to keep up with all this. They're jumping around all over the place.
1: Now at the concert, this next musical bit is a song called Circle Sky, as was written by uh, Michael Nesmith. The really important thing to note here is that this live clip in the movie, this is actually the band playing this song live in concert in front of these fans. This is not a pre recorded. They're not lip syncing. This is actually a live performance clip that they throw into the movie here. And it rocks. Yeah. It's one of my favorite Monkey songs. It
0: would have been cooler if they had just done a concert film or something. (laughs) They use a lot of the same techniques that you'll see later in the Led Zeppelin concert movie. The song remains the same. Mm -hmm. A lot of the double imaging and that sort of thing. But the song's fine. The weird thing is it's intercut with more Vietnam War footage and. Civilians running around with bloody heads and and that sort of stuff. We're going to keep pushing this through the whole movie, huh? Right.
1: And what's interesting is they throw that shot in of that execution. Yeah. They do a really nice little bit of editing with the song lyrics because that happens right about the same time that Michael sings, What you have seen you must believe if you can.
0: I did not notice that. I'm glad you did. So then we get the fans rushing the stage and screaming girls tear the monkeys apart, except... They have turned into mannequins. Because they're manufactured, you they're, see. They're saying the band is plastic. Yes, they're fake. making a statement. Mannequins come up many, many times in this movie. This is a common theme they start beating you through the head with. From there, we start flipping through old black and white movies on television. There's a clip from an uh, old Bela Gosi movie. One of the clips looked like Ronald Reagan.
1: Yes. Okay. Was yeah, he they... governor?
0: Was this from a movie or was this something when he was governor? No, he I was, believe this is when he, he was, governor was governor of California. He was governor of California at the time.
1: Because I forget what it is he says, but he's talking about... He's talking about a ship in the harbor
0: Yeah, or something. exactly.
1: Something that was going on that okay. they would have been dealing yeah. with. We're kind of setting the stage for, for more that comes later. This is Victor Mature flipping the channels on the TV. We okay. don't see that it's him yet. And as we get towards the end of it, there's a nice little tap dance clip. And I, and I don't know what the film is from. A but she does this little clip. tap dance. And then once she's done, there's this clip where they intercut this other guy where he says, What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> that should have
0: been the tagline for the movie. <laughs>
1: also intercut with all of that are these Ford dealership commercials. You've got these four or five different little clips of different Ford dealership commercials where they all claim to have the world's largest Ford dealership.
0: Okay, I didn't realize that they were all different. I thought it was the same guy who was just like flipping back to the same (laughs) ad.
1: No, what was funny there is how they were all different commercials for different dealerships, all making the same claim.
0: I noticed that one of the car's prices was $666. (laughs) $666.
1: then as he, as he flips through the channels, he eventually lands on Mickey wandering the desert. Yeah, Mickey wanders through the desert and finds an empty Coke machine, which he proceeds to go office space on. Well, you see, he's wandering in the middle of the desert. And, oh, look, a refreshment. And then it steals his money and doesn't give him a drink. He was pissed. Yeah. Don't you ever, you ever get a little sa- upset when the, the machine sa- steals sa- your money and bang on right, a little bit?
0: The same way Michael Bolton had the right to beat the shit out of that copier, <laughs> Mickey had the right to beat the shit out of that Coke machine fucking machine took my quarter. And then suddenly, an A-rab rides (laughs) out of the desert, looking like Jamie Farr in Cannonball Run. (laughs) He comes up, says, and instantly fucks off. (laughs) And then, because why not, an Italian tank shows up. Although, the flag on the Italian tank is backwards. Whether that's on purpose or is part of some kind of satire, I don't know. The driver gets out and
1: surrenders to Mickey. Vito Scotti, uh, you might know him as the Nazarene in The Godfather. Nazarene. Yeah, he's a character actor who's been in all kinds of stuff over the years. He uh, surrenders
0: like he's in the Iraqi army in Desert Storm.
1: <laughs> this is an example, I think, of one of the things that in 68, it would have been a little bit more recognized and significant that now here, you know, 50 some odd years later, we're missing the cultural reference oh, that was sure, taking yeah. place. The, the Italian army's, You know, is known for surrendering in some way, shape, or form that they're playing Oh, it's from World War II, because Italy capitulated. I get the impression that it has otherwise now worked its way into movies as a bit of a trope.
0: Italy and France have a very solid reputation for surrendering without too much trouble. So here it Um,
1: is. Here is the Italian army coming and surrendering again.
0: So Mickey says, hey, I got a new tank to play with. That's right. He gets in the tank, and he blows up the Coke machine. And there's a great continuity error where you see him sticking his head out of the hatch... We cut to the tank with the hatch closed and he shoots and blows it up, and then we cut back and Mickey's got his head sticking out of the hatch again. But after seeing Battlefield Earth, I'm <laughs> used to stuff like that. So. I don't think
1: they've actually let him drive the tank. No do big
0: you? deal. <laughs> well, they aren't letting anybody shoot the tank with their head sticking out of the hatch, that's for sure. That's dangerous. Suddenly, Mickey is now dressed like Lawrence of Arabia while a harem of women dances for him. Is that culture appropriation? We've got to have our first trigger warning of the movie. <laughs> Where this would appear to be
1: cultural appropriation. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Our next musical number. So, now we've got all these belly dancers while we get into our next number. Right. The song is called Can You Dig It? This one's written by Peter Tork, one of two songs that he wrote that's in the movie. The music kind of has a little bit of uh, a Middle Eastern kind of mm-hmm. flavor, just a little bit. So they they kind of threw it in here to throw the belly dancers in. Because uh, why not? Why not? Yeah, you get three and a half minutes of my candy to enjoy the visuals while the music plays.
0: And it's rated G, folks. <laughs> <laughs> the MPAA really knew what they were doing in 1968. And now, all of a sudden, we jump to being in a
1: Cowboys and Engines movie. That's right. With This the, is the Western portion with of our, our film. With our special guest star, Terry Gar. Terry Gar in her first major motion picture role ever. This
0: would have been around the time she did that Star Trek episode, probably. Assignment Earth. So, it would have been maybe a little bit after this. But, yeah, around the same time period. Yeah. We get another trigger warning as Michael refers to the indigenous natives attacking him as savages. (laughs) Mickey pulls a a much tamer version of the Christian Bale rant and storms off the set. Oh, good for you. I'm going to fucking kick your fucking ass. You don't shut up for a second, all right? The first of of many times that
1: we break the fourth wall. He goes and then rips right through it and walks off the set. He's had enough. He's fed up. Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally.
0: He and Mike walk off the set and get off the lot, and I can't follow anything that's happening.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> they come across Davey on this set, who's playing a one-string
1: violin. Yes, yeah, a little tease here. Yeah. A little tease of Davey they, playing they, the violin. They
0: interrupt his sequence, and the music is still playing, and the record starts skipping.
1: The camera pans back to show you the other camera filming the scene that's been interrupted as the guys run in.
0: It's like that scene in Mulholland Drive where the woman is singing, then she collapses and the singing is still going on. (laughs) It's all fake. I get it. They then go to a diner where they have to fight everyone to get in because everyone decides to leave instantly when word gets out that they're arriving.
1: Right. So here it is. Everybody hates the monkeys. Okay. So as these guys show up, everybody else that's there working on the studio a lot Wants nothing to do with them. So you hear them kind of mumbling, oh, these damn kids, oh, these long-haired weirdos. The fucking monkeys. You're kidding me. And everybody gets to fuck out because they don't yeah. want to be anywhere near there as these guys show up. And the waitress, as they enter in, well, if it isn't God's gift to the eight-year-olds. Yeah,
0: the waitress makes a lot of snide remarks. Yes, there's some witty banter that goes back yeah, and forth, a lot of trading snarky some snarky comments here. with the band.
1: This whole sequence here really is just kind of poking fun at their image and who they've become in the pop culture conscience at the time. Peter seems oddly attached to his melted ice cream cone. <laughs> And I'm not sure
0: why. He holds it close to the camera. He's out of focus in the background. It's like a scene in a 3D movie where they would stick something way up in the foreground for you to have your glasses where you can see it. Except this movie wasn't shot in 3D. And I don't know why I'm staring at this ice cream cone.
1: <laughs> Nice bit of film editing and the, the scene transition here, though, as Davey's trading barbs with the waitress, and she hauls back to lay one on him and punches him. And we make the transition to now Davey in the ring as a boxer getting beat up. Beat up by Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston who was the
0: heavyweight champ in 1962 before he lost to Cassius Clay in 1964. He lost again in 1965 to Muhammad Ali, same guy. It was a first round knockout that was a big surprise to a lot of people. So some people were thinking the fix was in on that fight and Liston would eventually die in mysterious circumstances in 1970. So just a couple years after this movie, they think maybe the mob was not happy with him for some stuff and maybe
1: took him out. His death was kind of suspicious. What a story, Mark. That's an interesting story based on now kind of how things play out in the rest of this scene.
0: Because it's basically a gangster movie with a fixed fight
1: thing. Yeah. You've got Mike
0: sitting in the crowd saying, hey, he's, the money says he stays down. So it's like Snatch where you have Brad Pitt and the pikey box. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> supposed to stay down, but he won't go down. He keeps getting back up before the fight though the way this scene kind of transitions you know the editing is a little bit all over the place as they go through this yeah. you get to see the touching scene now flashing back to Davey playing the violin playing up that you know here he is he he's this virtuoso violinist who has all this potential to go on and play at Carnegie Hall and be a huge success but he doesn't want that with these hands he could have been someone he could have been a contender <laughs> He does these impersonations. I swear, you would think it was the real people. (laughs) He had dreams. He had aspirations. So he leaves his life behind there with old Annette Funicello. I was
0: going to say, we got Annette Funicello in the stands. That's a name that, depending on what generation you're in, means a lot of different things. Right. Your kids, Annette Funicello would mean who? (laughs) For my mom, Mickey Mouse Club, Beach Blanket Bingo, you know, Mm -hmm. Beach Movies. For you and I, it's Skippy Peanut Butter. Right? She was doing skippy peanut butter commercials for years and years, from like nineteen seventy-nine until I don't know, well into the eighties.
1: Skippy peanut butter, skippy, 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 skippy peanut butter, skippy, 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 skippy peanut butter, skippy. Skippy peanut butter, skippy, 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 skippy. Skippy, 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 skippy peanut butter, skippy, 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 skippy. Skippy, skippy peanut butter. Skippy, 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 skippy.
0: Skippy, skippy. That's a lot of peanut butter. Do you suppose they paid her in peanut butter? That was probably part of her total compensation package. she got a lot of peanut butter. (laughs) I wonder how many dogs she has. (laughs) Whenever you see a woman who's got a lot of peanut butter, she's probably got a lot of dogs. And then you got to start wondering why the dogs are all wearing oven mitts.
1: (laughs) But I don't know the answer to any of those questions. So Davey gives up his prospective career as a violinist to be champ. We break the fourth wall again as he leaves the set. So he kind of walks off the scene. So he walks up to the lineup, picks out Sonny Liston and says, here, I'll I'll have a go at him. And then kind of gives him the, hey, here, go ahead, hit me. And another bit of fun editing where from that scene, as he goes to give him a little mock punch on the chin,
0: back into the ring. I got a little out of order, but it's hard to tell because everything in the movie is out of order. (laughs) part of this charm. I'm out of order. You're out of order. This whole movie's out of order. <laughs> In the crowd, Mickey gets mad when Mike calls him a dummy. Right. And he goes on a fucking rampage <laughs> and starts beating the shit out of everybody. He is only calmed down when Peter tells him, I'm the dummy.
1: Which now was a play back on is, the TV show. I was going
0: to ask, is his character the yes. stupid one? Okay. So,
1: so that was kind of the thing is that on the TV show, Peter's always the one who's the dummy and doesn't know what's going on. One of those things where it's the inside joke that's in the movie that if you don't understand the monkeys, you don't understand some of the context, then you don't get those little things that they've baked into it.
0: Then we go back to the diner where Peter does an Austin Powers and punches the waitress. That's not your mother. It's a man, baby. And Peter is very upset about punching a woman that isn't a woman. It's not right. Um, It's
1: not good for the image. Yeah. He's worried what people are going to think. He's a hippie. He's a, you know, love his fellow man kind of guy. It's very out of character for something that he would do. And what's interesting here now as he turns to... Bob Rafelson there, who comes out from behind the camera, mm-hmm. is in, in the scene as they're talking about it. Peter now goes around to everybody to kind of talk about it. Hey, what do you think about this? D- this doesn't seem right to me. And everybody basically ignores him and blows him off. They start shunning him. And, yes, exactly. he punched a woman. <laughs> and this is where
0: we get our cameo from a young Jack Nicholson running around mm-hmm. and also a young Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper. And he uh, looks just like Billy from Easy Rider, probably because they were also filming Easy Rider <laughs> around this time. So now we get these kind of these little solo sort of sequences where we've got Peter going to a snow covered mountain. Davy goes to a field full of flowers and Mike goes to the beach. I don't know where Mickey goes, I we missed that, <laughs> but there's a lot of sequences in the movie where we don't have all four of them together. Right. And I don't know if that was intentional or not. We get a lot of like solo things. Like you had Mickey running around in the desert by himself earlier and the other guys are nowhere to be found.
1: The idea is I, as I heard about it was that, when Bob and Jack went off to write the script, they kind of picked out key points of each of the four guys' personality and then really kind of honed in and focused on it for each of them to kind of have their own story. So that's kind of the thing. It's kind of similar to like you, you brought up Song Remains the Same earlier, where each of those guys has their own fantasy sequence that's focusing on each of them. Similar thing here where throughout the movie, we get to focus in on each of the four guys kind of having their own spotlight and their own moment where it's pulling out a very strong point of their personality. So like with Davy getting the uh, the Broadway song and dance number kind of a thing, and
0: before that, the uh, Hard Day's Night, the Beatles did that where they all had a section where they were yeah. all each kind of out on their own doing something for a little while.
1: The song I mean, here before song, we yeah. before we skip the sequence uh, is called As We Go Along. This was another one by Carol King. This one written with Tony Stern. This was the B side to the Porpoise song single. Again, another favorite Monkey song of mine. A beautiful song, and I think the visuals in this sequence the cinematography, I think, is really, really well done. Story-wise, you know, there's nothing to it. It's basically, you know, a little music video stuck in the middle of the film.
0: Yeah, there's no dialogue, no nothing's happening. they're just kind of chilling out in these different spots.
1: But the images uh, over this sequence, I think, are are really well done. It's nice to point that out and give them kudos for for the visuals on on the sequence here. Okay, so then we go to these
0: billboards. Doesn't seem like product placement. It just seems like they were just randomly filming a bunch of billboards just... I don't know, an emphasis on commercialization.
1: Yeah, and I think that's part of the transition into the next sequence where they're now in a factory.
0: Yeah, they're going on a tour of a factory where all kinds of wacky things are going on, but only Davey seems to notice that it, anything strange is going on. The
1: guy that's leading them on the tour, if, if you're paying attention to the dialogue, he's kind of going on about how safety is very important. So he's calling out
0: and guys are all the safety measures as
1: everybody that they're passing by is getting hurt and maimed and dead. <laughs> it's funny! It's funny! because <laughs> it's a comedy you see <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> they are then put into a dark room and apparently it's a commercial shoot where they end up as flakes of dandruff in victor mature's hair we finally get to see victor mature that's right he was a big name actor in the 40s and 50s he had actually retired from acting in 1959 when he was 46 years old he did come out of retirement a couple times this being one of them but why he did this, I don't know. Unless he knew the guys or there, the, they gave him a Brinks truck full of money. There's a
1: fun story about how this all went down. So the reason why he's in, in the mix in the first place, as they were kind of pulling together all of the different things that they wanted to throw into the movie, he makes a comment about wanting to have the darkest thing in the world, you know, represented as part of you know what they're throwing in the movie. And so, you know, Jack Nicholson kind of asks, well, what's the darkest thing? And the joke is Victor Mature's hair. Boom. And so now that becomes the focus of this particular part of the movie now, Victor Mature's hair, and then they get sucked in. How he got to be in the film, the guys are sitting around, Rafelson, Schneider, Nicholson, and Michael Nesmith, kind of having that conversation. How are we going to get him on to do this movie? Michael Nesmith just kind of says, well, why don't you just call him up and ask? And they all kind of start to rag on him. Oh, ha, ha, you're right. Well, why don't you just go ahead and call him smart guy? Well, you have his number, I'll, I'll call him. And so, you know, they're joking with him. Here, here's his number. You go ahead. You go ahead and call. Victor Mature answers. He's like, "Well, hi, Mr. Mature. I'm Mike Lesmith. I'm one of the monkeys on TV. And oh, yeah, yeah, I know you. I've seen your show. Well, listen, we're making a movie, and we were wondering if you'd like to be in it. And while this dialogue's going on, the other guys in the room are just cutting on him. Oh, come on, give it up. You're not talking to anybody. There's no one on the other line of the line. Well, well, yeah, here the producers are here. Let me put them on and let you talk to them. Hands the phone over to Bob Rafelson, who just goes stark white. Oh my God, he's really on the phone. Oh my God, he did it. So from there, they have the conversation, and, and Victor Mature agrees to be in the movie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what a story mark so they are flakes of dandruff and victor mature's hair for some kind of a commercial they get sucked up by a vacuum and fall in the bag with dust and all kinds of sort of items one of which is hinted to be a
1: marijuana joint a roach yeah. <laughs> this is not your standard brand Interestingly enough, some of the, what they were talking about in the commentary is how they went out of their way to not say marijuana. Again, yeah. not wanting to alienate anybody that they said, no, 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 that's El Zumo. <laughs> they gave it some extra, you know, so, to not really kind of be overt about the fact that, oh, it's that, supposed to be pot.
0: So we're the junkies
1: <laughs> for assuming that. So yes, that was the implied joke, but they were a little underhanded about it. They kind of kept it on the down low.
0: Davy, for some reason, comes out from the front of the vacuum cleaner. He catches in the tube on the way down oh, okay, okay. and manages to pull himself out. And at this part, he does a song and dance with Tony Basil. Hey, Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you're blah, my Hey, Mickey. I was
1: curious whether or not you'd catch that this was her.
0: Sure, yeah, it's her. She's also in uh, Easy Rider. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, she was with those guys. She BBS choreographed guys. the
1: the dance number here. Okay. So she's, uh, she's doing the dance with Davy in this Harry Nilsson song called Daddy Song.
0: They're going to make Marie McCormick jealous. <laughs> she's getting a dance with Davy Jones. Have to uh, console her with (laughs) some peanut butter and a Nefunicello's doll.
1: (laughs) Fun film stuff here in the uh, way that they filmed the sequence twice once in a bright white background and Davy in a black tux, and then again flipped with a black dark background background and Davy in the white tux, and then intercut the two uh, over the course of the sequence. It's far
0: out. It keeps changing colors, man. It's blowing my mind. (laughs) I don't know how far ahead I'm skipping, but Frank Zappa shows up with a talking cow. At
1: the very end of the song. Okay. Where he proclaims, the song's pretty white.
0: (laughs) Well, Frank Zappa would know, right? That's right. I'm not stoned enough watching this movie that I should be seeing a talking cow.
1: (laughs) Yikes. Funny side story. (laughs) Frank Zappa actually invited Mickey to be the drummer for the Mothers of Invention. While the monkeys
0: was going on, or after this uh, uh, movie? Yeah,
1: kind of as this was all going on. Frank Zappa appears in one of the later episodes of the show in a fun little uh, interview sequence with Michael Nesmith where Nez kind of puts on a fake beard and he pretends to be Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa puts on the green hat, pretends to be Nez, and they interview each other as each other. Uh, now I gotta track
0: down these clips. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so yeah, they kind of you know knew each other and had some conversations that, that they invited him back to be in this. So why didn't he do it? He couldn't get out of his contract. He was prohibited from going to join the Mothers of Invention. Oh, my God. And that's why it never happened. But there's your fun background story that Mickey could have been.
0: There were a lot of weird things with record companies in, like, the late 60s, early 70s. That's why so many of the people on All Things Must Pass Mm -hmm. had to go under, like, fake names or uncredited altogether. And it's only in the last few years where they've finally been able to put their names in the liner notes.
1: The big black box kind of comes up out of the middle of the road. Peter, Mickey, and and Mike pop out, and the cops stand in there and say, like, where are you boys headed? (laughs) you got to harass the long-haired weirdos.
0: That's how old this movie is. This is back when cops used to beat white people. (laughs) (laughs) It's all different now.
1: Yeah, 53 years ahead of its time as it's poking on the the police here.
0: Now we have Davey opening a bathroom mirror to see a giant eye staring at him. That's scary. I didn't know this was a scary movie. (laughs) Is that supposed to be Victor Mature's eye?
1: I don't know if it was or not, but... Because you never find out.
0: Peter comes in whistling strawberry fields forever. He opens the mirror and sees nothing. Nobody ever lends money to a man with a sense of humor. Davy opens the mirror and looks again. The mirror now shows the background. It's now changed to
1: like a Roger Corman-looking horror movie. Song. Yeah, he's sucked into a some kind of other dimension or something.
0: So it looks like something out of one of Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe pictures, and I'm thinking... Well, Jack Nicholson worked on some of those. He knew Boris Karloff, and he could probably get a hold of, like, Boris Karloff or Vincent Price. How come we don't get cameos from them? It's a little disappointing. Bella Lugosi's other... in one of the
1: film clips that gets popped well, in. Yeah, but
0: Bella Lugosi was dead by the time this movie came out. <laughs> Boris Karloff and Vincent Price were still alive. They could have got those guys to show up. Now we get another trigger warning. Peter, Mickey, and Mike are captured by African Zulu warriors. <laughs> Or something. Then the scene shifts to show them being held by the cop who was hassling them earlier.
1: So now they're in the bathroom, chained up against the wall, being interrogated by the cop, looking for Davey. And, oh, we don't don't know where he is. He was in the the john, or comfort room. Impolite to suggest that he's in the john. Yeah. (laughs) Then the
0: cop starts doing a sexy dance.
1: I just uh, threw up in my mouth a little bit.
0: And then the cop passes out when he sees Victor mature, as you do.
1: Well, why would Victor Mature be there in the bathroom and behind
0: you in the mirror? I immediately wrote after this, I don't understand anything. (laughs) I have no clue what the fuck is going on. I'm not stoned enough for this. I'm just kind of lost.
1: Well, then that leads us to the cop's dream sequence. Mike wakes up popping up out of bed as the door buzzer's ringing. Peter gets up to go and answer the door and it's a telegram. He reads the telegram and gets very serious and rushes off. And disappears and runs back through the same kind of haunted house looking thing that Davey disappeared into. With all the hubbub going on and the door slamming, Mike comes back out of the room again. What's going on? And then suddenly, yeah, now Mickey's gone too. And he sees the telegram on the floor, picks it up and...
0: Did you have what the telegram says? Because I don't remember if they told us. I
1: didn't freeze frame it to read it. I think you see it very briefly because it zooms in on the stop as a transitional point in, in the editing.
0: At one point, Mike calls out, this isn't funny. I agree.
1: (laughs) He's starting to freak out and wonder what's going on. We have some more solarization of the film as he goes wandering around and Nez opens the door and then you've got monks chanting.
0: Monkeys
1: chanting. (laughs) Huh? I see what they did. Yes.
0: It's three monkeys who start singing happy birthday. It's a surprise party! It's a big psycho. Everybody's
1: disappeared to to kinda, you know. Oh hey, it's a surprise. It's your birthday. Happy birthday.
0: It's a big psychedelic party, man. Lots of flashing lights and and crazy psychedelic stuff. Are they trying to give us seizures with the (laughs) the flashing lights? (laughs) 60s psycho jello. Yeah, now they would have warnings up at the movie theater telling you, hey, there's a lot of flashing lights in case you got epilepsy.
1: This song sequence here, the song written by Peter Tork, the short title is long title. The long title is Do I Have to Do This All Over Again? Oh, God, I hope not. I just want to get done with this the first time. (laughs) Mike is none too
0: happy about this party and tells everyone off after the song is over.
1: He doesn't like surprises.
0: He also doesn't like Christmas.
1: Is he Jewish? (laughs) On the soundtrack, Jack Nicholson edited together the soundtrack, and the soundtrack is very much put together as a representative of the movie. You like, bits of
0: dialogue? Yeah, the songs are
1: all thrown in there, but in between the songs are all the snippets and stuff from the movie. And in a clever bit of editing here where he throws that in, he takes the snippet from Frank Zappa earlier on talking to Davey after Daddy's Song where he makes the comment that the song's pretty white, puts that together now with this clip from Nez saying, and I'll tell you something else too. The same thing goes for Christmas. And puts them together in the sound montage. So So
0: Christmas is pretty white. Song's pretty
1: white. And I'll tell you something else too. The same thing goes for Christmas. Comedy gold. It's that genius. Is. That is genius. <laughs> this movie
0: is like an acid trip I didn't want. And I'm not stoned enough to
1: appreciate. I don't know what to make of it. I think it's one that grows on you when you see it with repeat viewings. It grows on you like ringworm. <laughs> so now we get
0: black and white interview footage with people who give us answers to questions that we don't hear.
1: Well, the impetus in that is Timothy Carey comes back again for like the third time, comes up in the wheelchair and then gets up and kind of does the bit where he's uh, slurring his words and he's crippled or whatever.
0: Oh, Timothy and, Carey, that's the guy who's like in the sort of Old West looking sequences. Yeah, yeah. he's the, he's, the, the he's popping, popping up throughout the guy.
1: proceedings, yeah. He gets up out of the wheelchair and is uh, limping and slurring his words and everything and everybody busts into laughter. The whole following sequence with the man on the street interviews is supposed to be now people reacting to the whole idea of, you know, you shouldn't make fun of cripples. But it's funny. (laughs) Because that's the thing now is boys don't ever, but never make fun of no cripples. And then they throw into all this this sequence now of the Man we, on the Street interviews.
0: We call them handy capable now, handy-capable. thank you. <laughs> the fuck is this movie?
1: And at the end of all of the interviews where everybody kinda is going on there, for the first time we kinda come to a little pause as the screen fades to black. The first and only time in the movie where we take a breath. <laughs> yeah. I'd say it would have been nice
0: for an intermission, but the movie's only eighty five minutes, it just feels longer because it's a struggle. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. It's it's like you're watching the movie, and the movie is fighting you every step of the way. It's like it's daring you to watch it. (laughs) Now we've got the four being prisoners in some kind of a cell, and then the scene transitions to a
1: sauna. Davy gets up, goes to the cell door, looks out into the fog, which transitions now into a steam room with Peter and the Indian mystic laying the heavy teachings on him, Yeah, like the Maharishi. And kind of going back to that idea where each of the four guys kind of get their little bits of the movie. Here's this bit now that's really kind of looking at Peter and amplifying his personality as the brown rice hippie guy that, you know, is all about peace and love. So now this very introspective sort of deep Indian philosophy going on.
0: So was this sort of a knockoff of the whole Beatles thing? Not intentionally, no. This was okay. kind of
1: Peter's jam. He was that guy.
0: Because they were in India, some of them, for a couple months. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he was very much on that same trip with George Harrison in terms of where he was following with things.
0: The guru speaks of clarity. Right. While he is obscured by great clouds of steam. Symbolism, man. (laughs) I get it. Symbolism. He speaks of clarity, but it's not clear. That's all I got. I don't know. Did you get anything else out of that?
1: What's funny here is, you know, Peter's kind of sitting at the foot of the master listening to everything as it's coming down here. Sonny listens back in the sauna, and says, hey, let's have some more steam. And that's our transition out as the guru disappears. Peter has a bit of an epiphany. Yes, he has
0: the answer. As
1: he gets up, oh, he's got it all figured out now. This guy's made it clear and opened the way to him. He, he comes out wanting to share it with the other guys. So now he comes out of the steam room back onto the street. Now we've got Nez and Mickey out in the street looking up With the crowd, as there's a young woman on top of a building screaming that she's going to jump. Do it. (laughs) Peter comes out and says, oh, guys, here, I got to share this with you. I've got the great answer to all the mysteries of life. And they kind of blow him off. Yeah, they're
0: much more interested in watching this girl jump off the building. Right,
1: but it's kind of Peter being ignored again like he was earlier in the movie. Now it comes back around that nobody's really paying attention to him and listening to what he has to say. As they place bets on whether or not the girl's going to jump. But and, see,
0: this time he's not being ignored because he punched a woman. He's just being ignored because nobody really wants to hear the answer.
1: I took it more as a they were just ignoring it because it was Peter.
0: See, that's the thing. Not following the dynamic of the show so much. It's almost like that thing that nobody really pays attention when the answer's right there. And, and there, there could, could be that playing it. into it, too, on a little ah, deeper that's, level. That's how I looked at it. That's what a year of film school will get you.
1: But Nez wins the bet as she yes, jumps. Apparently
0: the girl jumped because Mike has caught her. When you <laughs> and Mickey's to paying up. Scene. This movie's been so crazy and random, I'm surprised they didn't just let her splatter all over the concrete and show us. I mean, we've seen two or three instances of somebody getting shot in the head, so it
1: wouldn't have surprised me. Now now Davy's back where we left him in the bathroom. Peter walks into the bathroom to see him, and Davey's there still staring into the medicine cabinet where he was in the first place. He he just he just had a bad trip, man. He was there all along. Bad trip. What could that possibly be referring to? (laughs) Oh far out, man. Davy's had enough at this point, so he kind of comes out storming out a little bit. Peter tries to get them all to listen and he tries to get them to get them to, hey, hey, guys, hey, fellas, as, as they're wandering through. And, and they do a little swipe where the thing goes in front of the camera and obscures it as they transition now back into the factory.
0: Back in the box. They didn't listen to Peter.
1: That's right. And guys, if you don't listen, you're going to end up back in the
0: box. Yep, they end up back in the box. And
1: now here they are in the box. And here's the big scene where they're really in it for a little bit, even though it's been hinted at up to this point along the way. Behind the scenes, there's a story. The black box that they're in at this point is based on a real sort of black box that was built on the set of the TV show to contain them in between scenes. While they were filming the show, there were constant times where they'd be off set on the sidelines and one of them wouldn't be involved in the scene while somebody else is is filming and they'd be being noisy or interrupting in some way, shape, or form, that the producers built this black box. It was all soundproof. They had, you know, refrigerators and food, and it was kind of, you know, had a corner for each of them to kind of have their own space. And when they weren't on set, they went and hung on this box, and the little light in each of their corners, that would, you know, oh, hey, we need you on set. Come on in. So it's the way Davey writes it in his book. They built this huge black box, 16 feet by 12 feet by 8 feet high, a giant meat freezer door, completely soundproofed, carpet on the walls, pillows everywhere, and a light in each corner with our name under it. So whenever they wanted one of us, they just flashed our light. It was great. We had everything we needed. So that was for real, and it was featured and expanded on in Head. It seems to me like you're an expert, Mark. So the idea now that they're in this box, based in the reality of this experience that they had where they kind of got shoved away into this corral, because we can't contain you, we don't need you right here, go be quiet go somewhere Go away, else.
0: boy. I say go away. Bob. Exactly. He does these impersonations. I swear you would think it was the real people.
1: So now they turn that into a, a metaphor in the film with this big black box.
0: Oh, there's worse places they could have put them. It rubs the
1: lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> so
0: Peter starts waxing philosophical. Yes.
1: Yeah, so everybody gets to sit down now and he, he starts to kind of regurgitate what he'd learned from the guru earlier.
0: I'm sure all the twelve-year-old girls in the audience were riveted at this.
1: <laughs> it's all fine until Peter gets to the end of his speech and, and declares, "Why should you listen to me when I know nothing?" And Davy doesn't respond well to that. Davy, at this point, he was the guy that said, he "All right, gets here, angry Peter, whatever you got to say, man, I'm in your corner. I'm you say it, and I'm right with you all the way down the line," until Peter says he didn't know what he's talking about. Now Davy's pissed. So he yeah, breaks th- down the door. He goes on a fucking
0: rampage. He's <laughs> running around beating the shit out of everybody, throwing them off of railings. It's like an action movie
1: star all of a sudden. Little five-foot-three Englishman like, going watch around out kicking ass. Uh,
0: watch out Schwarzenegger. <laughs> 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 throwing people all over the place. So they, they end up breaking up out of the factory, and now they're back on the Western set where they're accosted by a gang that Davy blows up with a cannon that magically appears before them. <laughs> it's not there, and then it is. And then kaboom. And, then and suddenly, big
1: Victor Mature pops up, and
0: Victor Mature playing the part of Godzilla shows up, <laughs> and laughs maniacally as the monkeys are now
1: back in the box them back again. into the box,
0: and the box is picked up by a helicopter, taken to the desert, and dropped. And the box breaks open upon impact, and the monkeys find themselves surrounded by everybody from earlier in the movie—the
1: all of the antagonists, you all the, the bad guys, everybody that they've kind of had to.
0: You got the. Arabs, you yeah. got the Italians, you got the Indians, you got the Coke machine back. That's right, all assembled it's, for a final showdown. It's crazy, yeah. The Arabs charge and ride off. The Italian tank chases them down and shoots, blowing up the Coke machine again.
1: Begin the epic chase sequence, which is
0: where the Arabs were having a drink, <laughs> you no, know, minding their own business, and then they blow up the Coke machine once again, putting down people of color. Your trigger warning is <laughs> in full effect. Then giant Victor Mature hits a golf ball. Which sends the group flying back to the Hollywood set. (laughs) They run backwards through the movie. They go back in the factory, and Peter's back in the steam room with the guru again. Mm -hmm. Back to flipping channels on television. They bust back through the backdrop on the western set. Yeah, more black and white Vietnam footage. This is the one hour, 19 minute mark. We get the shot of some rando's head, which is what they used in the trailer to, to promote the movie.
1: Which I forget is, who that was uh, along the way. Fantastic marketing. He he was attached to the movie somehow. I, I forget what the guy's name is or who he was. It's
0: like they're daring people to watch this movie. <laughs> then there's a kind of a silent movie section complete with the piano. And then the band drives a dune buggy off the lot while giant Victor Mature tries to stomp them. While real
1: Victor Mature watches on I'm TV. watching on TV. And it's and meta. Yawned. It was meta before meta was meta. Yeah, cue the Inception horn. <laughs> it, it,
0: Real Victor Mature is bored with it. He yawns as uh-huh, he watches uh-huh. this. I feel you, man. <laughs> Seriously. So Victor does the office space and kicks his TV in.
1: And Which kicks monkeys... over the dune buggy that yes, the guys are riding yes, in that's monkeys... on TV.
0: The monkeys go flying out of the dune buggy and are then chased by everyone across the desert and back to back the Back to the beginning of the movie. the beginning of the movie. <laughs> and this time, all four of them jump off the bridge. And if there were a bridge here, I'd jump off the motherfucker right now, too. <laughs> Because what the fuck is going on? And now we're back in the water. There's more psychedelic shit going on. Until a truck dries off with the monkeys in the black box. And this time the black box is actually a water tank. And Victor Mature is dressed like fucking Sherlock Holmes. Riding on the back. Why he's Sherlock Holmes and not, I don't know, the fucking Easter Bunny? I don't know. It would be just as random. You could dress him up as anything and it would make just as much sense. The film unspools and melts off the screen at the end. I wish that had happened at the fucking beginning of the movie. Because then I could be done with it. We get to the end credits, and there's a giggle at the end from a little girl.
1: That's the, um, what's-her-face from back to the beginning of the movie when they're having the kissing contest. And she giggles at him as she leaves. It's that giggle. It's that giggle. Cut it at the end, yeah.
0: Oh, good. Well, fuck you too, bitch.
1: (laughs) So, that's head. That's the monkeys. (laughs) So yeah and we've spent I've... about as long talking about it as it would be for you to actually watch it. So which is yeah, more entertaining it's... us talking about it or watching the movie? That's why we have editing. <laughs> I was keeping track. We've got
0: themes of confusion, lack of communication, artificiality, anti-war. The movie's got a lot going on, but to me the messages were pretty heavy-handed, especially the war stuff. Mhm. To me, it seemed like the band was using this movie as an airing of grievances. Right. A public, we're fed up with this crap, we're going to destroy our image, Mm -hmm. we're lighting this whole thing on fire.
1: You got that, you picked up on that without me even telling you then, so they did a good job with that.
0: Um, Publicly airing their grievances (laughs) about the way they were being perceived publicly and professionally. The problem I've got with it, who wants to hear a bunch of celebrities complain about their problems? People have enough problems. I read through a lot of the shit going on in 1968. There's a lot of crazy shit going on in the world. Nobody wants to hear the monkeys going, boo-hoo, nobody takes this seriously. Well, it wasn't
1: so much that. Again, it was more, we're in on the joke with you. We're going to embrace this, and we're going to turn this on its head. And more so than the four guys themselves, Burt Schneider and Bob Rafelson at this point almost trying to distance themselves from the monkeys as the TV show ends, and they go to make this movie, They're almost kind of burning that bridge as they're looking forward to a film career where they want to go off and be creative as filmmakers and do their own thing apart from the monkeys and saying goodbye to this thing, this monster that we created.
0: I'm sure it didn't help that Peter was the only one that showed up for the first day of filming.
1: There was a contract dispute.
0: Yes. If what I read is correct, the rest of the band held out for a greater percentage of the net.
1: From what I was reading about it, I don't think it's disclosed kind of what it was that they got or what they were fighting for. But yeah, they, they negotiated something better than what they originally were going to get. Yeah,
0: the source I saw said they were negotiating about the net, which I hope isn't true because that's a rookie mistake, man. <laughs> Hollywood accounting, you will never see money from the net. The gross is what you want to get the money from because by the time they get done cooking the books, I remember Ben Affleck was talking about Goodwill Hunting. The movie cost maybe $10 million. He and Matt Damon had pieces of the net because they were like the screenwriters on it as well. Mm-hmm. And somehow, even though the movie had grossed well over $100 million in the United States alone, and it only cost $10 million, he had not seen a penny of net money from Miramax because mm. they kept showing him books. No, it, it didn't make any money. Who are you kidding, man? It made back 15 times what you spent on it. Right. But somehow the Hollywood accounting... So I certainly hope they didn't negotiate for a piece of the net because that was never going to happen. And not only that, their holdout, I'm sure, did nothing to help relations with Rafelson and Schneider. No,
1: in fact, the, the guys kind of point that out, that basically after that, things were never quite the same. And Yeah, we're trying to
0: make a movie and you guys are going to fuck around and try and hold us up for more money? Right. Oh.
1: The way Mickey kind of tells it is that they kind of felt screwed along the way. Like, they were on salary. I think I read that they made like 500 a week or something like that for the show. So financially speaking, they were seeing them, you know, as being actors hired to play the parts on this show, they were actually making more money from royalties from the record sales than they were making for being on the show. As this all came around, this was kind of their moment where they're like, hey, wait a minute, if we're going to go make this movie, we want to re- renegotiate. We want a little bit more because we feel like you're not sharing the wealth with us enough
0: See, that's the problem. They never made it to the second contract. Right. It's like when the Beatles had their first deal, they were getting paid in money that didn't exist anymore. They were getting royalties based off the farthing or something that hadn't <laughs> been in circulation in 50 years. But that second deal, that's mm-hmm. when they became just insanely
1: wealthy. Yeah.
0: And it had only been like two years. Right. So they hadn't really had the chance to get to that next level.
1: But that was kind of how that went down was the guys all said, hey, wait a minute, we want to renegotiate some things financially they all kind of banded together and said, here, you know, they can't film this movie without us. And then Peter was the scab that showed up.
0: I don't know who the audience for this movie is. And I think it just turns out to be nobody. <laughs> it's not for 12-year-old girls. Definitely not. The, the monkeys' fans, the movie would not hold their attention. Right. I it's think... an incoherent mess. It's not anything <laughs> that screaming girls would, they would much rather have watched a concert film or something.
1: I think it's the kind of movie that if it was not centered around the monkeys. You take the exact same style and approach to it where this very avant-garde and, and artsy-fartsy as it would probably would have been taken more seriously and looked at in some Andy Warhol-ish kind of...
0: See, I don't know, because it looks like the kind of thing... abstract thing. Jim Morrison would have been making fun when he was at film school back at the beginning <laughs> of the Doors movie. It seems like a student film in a lot of ways. We're just being crazy to be crazy. Mm-hmm. There's all this wacky stuff. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not made for teenage girls. It's not made for their parents because right. they don't give a shit about the monkeys anyway. The stoners and the other guys that are into more serious music, they weren't going to go see it. Mm-hmm. The fucking monkeys! You're kidding me! To me, it seems like a movie that's not made for anybody except the people
1: in it. Right. And in retrospect, everybody sort of agrees. Even though they look at it, Michael and Mickey in particular look at it very fondly and they're very proud of it. They look back at it. I think, that, you know, this was some really good work. We were doing some really great things. But in retrospect, we really should have done something a little bit more mainstream. Something more entertaining,
0: something more coherent. Yeah. The, something with a story. It
1: represents a, a product of its time, how it was drug-infused, and the yeah. fact that it was cobbled together from the guy sat down, smoked a lot of pot, and rambled into a tape recorder for you know three or four days. And then it was pieced together with all of these different ideas in mind that it wasn't just one story, but they really kind of threw the kitchen sink at you in terms of, you know, oh, it's a Western. Oh, it's sci-fi. Oh, it's a drama. It's But it's those things
0: for like three minutes at a time. Right.
1: It doesn't do any of them. (laughs) Doesn't do it justice. Yeah.
0: And that's reflected in the gross, which (laughs) I've got written down.
1: So to recap, the original budget... That Columbia Pictures put up was $750,000. I've got a gross of
0: $16,111.
1: Right. Adjusted, I have is $126,650.52.
0: Based on just... A, oh, again the $0.52. <laughs> 56, cents. Yeah. Just under $6 bucks. made $126,000. To me, the movie seems like a big middle finger to anybody that does watch it. <laughs> you kids want to see a monkeys movie? Here you go. Hope you like crap. It's just not my thing. I mean, I own it. It's in that box set. This was the first time I'd watched it probably since I cracked the set open because it was the first movie chronologically in the the set. And that would have been seven, eight years ago.
1: Well, the big thing that kind of comes into that box office number is some of the marketing that was going on.
0: Or lack thereof. Or
1: lack thereof, yeah, because I read these things that sort of say... None of the marketing materials mentioned the monkeys. That They intentionally distanced themselves from the monkeys, even mm-hmm. in marketing it, to try to get people to come in and see it. People that don't like the monkeys aren't going to see it, so let's not mention the monkeys and try to get some more people in that would maybe be interested otherwise. But even then, I kind of read how the idea is that the marketing is just this image of this guy's head with the word head popping up next to him. And that's it. But what's interesting is on the Blu-ray that I have that came in the box set, that I have it's got TV trailers and theatrical yeah. trailers on it and stuff like that and all of that includes mentions of the monkeys yeah it's, t- it's uh, telling this story again of how it's supposed to be the adventure western comedy love story mystery drama all things you know in one film so I'm kind of like wondering what am I missing in terms of they didn't include those really weird
0: they're on the criterion disc I don't oh know what are they got. yeah oh, okay yeah, that's mostly what it is I didn't even know they had a trailer with the monkeys until I found one on YouTube and I was pulling clips from Gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, most of the ones on the Criterion thing are just that image of that dude's head in black and white. And even the title, it's a slang term for like a pothead, a drug user. Well,
1: the idea there, the joke that I read along the way, because again, this was Raybert's first movie. And one of the guys basically said the idea was if they got to do another movie, the tagline becomes, From the producers who gave you head.
0: That's classy. <laughs> That's gonna get a lot of you know respectable people in the seats, instead of a bunch. But that of, was the joke. A bunch of damn dirty stoners. Movie. Yes, from the guys that gave you head. That's marketed to in the first place. <laughs> Holy shit, man! You're pushing your movie towards druggies, and nobody wants to see it.
1: The aftermath. Yeah. What's of what, this what, box what? office bomb? Yeah, this
0: did not make a fucking nickel. <laughs> Times Square theater show and do it to
1: me, you nasty sailor made $10,000 more than the monkeys did in their run. Oh my God. So even though this was an intentional...
0: Cut your own throat. Yes.
1: It was the antithesis of the monkeys' TV show. It really did kind of destroy the group's carefully groomed... yeah think? ...image and, and the persona. <laughs> the fans that they did have were completely turned off. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. It was kind of like when the Beatles went off and made Sgt. Pepper and kind of grew up and took the older kids with them, the younger kids were left around with nothing, so the monkeys came and filled that gap. Here, all of those younger fans now that are used to following these bubblegum monkeys that you saw on TV that were fun-loving and funny and everything, and Davy with the, the sparkling eyes singing the love songs, now they've gone and made this movie and everybody's going, What? The guys that did see it were lost, didn't get it, didn't appreciate it at all. But then the older crowd, that counterculture hippie group that I think they were trying to target, crickets, nothing, they didn't care yeah. because it was the monkeys. They didn't want anything to do with it. The monkeys went on to make a TV special called 33 and a third Revolutions per Monkey that ended up being aired in April of 1969 opposite the Academy Awards. So it was equally as received as the film. Back when people actually watched the Academy Awards. Right. Peter left the group shortly after that in early 69. They continued to release albums as a trio. They released two records without Peter. Mike leaves the band in early 1970. They do one more album without him, but each of them kind of subsequently sells fewer and fewer and they know fail to chart and they just kind of fade into obscurity. For as much as they were an overnight success, they really kind of burned out just as quickly and fizzled and were gone.
0: It'd be like if the Spice Girls lost posh and made an album, and then Sporty (laughs) took off, and they made another album, and eventually you've just got scary, and nobody wants that.
1: (laughs) So they fade into obscurity. Until 1986, when MTV starts to show some reruns, and everybody goes crazy for them all over again.
0: I think the thing I most remember about the Monkees is them being on Nick at Night.
1: That was where I got on board, was in the summer of 86, when MTV started showing the reruns, and I caught one along the way and got sucked in.
0: I remember it being Nick at Night, but I don't know, maybe they did both. They were on was...
1: MTV for starters. Okay. And then they had a falling out with MTV. MTV stopped playing the show, so Nickelodeon picked it up.
0: I remember seeing it and going, okay, this is kind of goofy, but <laughs> I, I wasn't as enamored as you were. It just seemed like it was kind of an oddball TV show, but you know, and, I and caught it, it every now and then. Yeah, it definitely was. But, I think that's where most 80s kids would have picked up on them.
1: Yeah, it, it sucked me in. The sense of humor and the vibe of the show really spoke to me, and I was in all in on it. They put out a Arista re- released a greatest hits package with some new songs on it. They had their first top 20 hit in uh, since 1967, I think, with that was then, this is now," had the big resurgence. And now this movie is seen as a kind of sleeper hit. It's like yeah, it's got that cultural credibility now that it didn't have back in the day that now it's looked back on as a different kind of thing than it was. From what I can tell, this movie has a rating of 6.5 on IMDB. And a
0: 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes, I got a bone to pick with them. How they figure out their ratings is a little wacky. It'll show you the reviews, and sometimes you'll be able to see the number rating that somebody gives it. So there's a certain point where the rating is considered good or bad. And according to this, there are ratings for this movie that are 2.5 stars out of 5. And those are counted as good ratings. There's also a rating that's a a 2.5 out of 4 is marked as a bad rating. So... Hmm. I would think 50% would be a bad rating. Do you think? Yeah, I don't know how they get their numbers. Hmm. And I don't know how 75% of people are like, yeah, this is good. But that something else we'll get to. It's like what Belloc says. It's like I've got this worthless watch from a vendor. If I bury it in the sand for 10,000 years, now it becomes <laughs> priceless. So if you bury a monkey's movie long enough, all of a sudden it becomes valuable <laughs> too, kind of. To me, the real aftermath of it kind of comes up with Rafelson for a while. Right. Because he goes on to become a big director. You had BBS doing their thing. He makes a lot of movies with Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. Five Easy Pieces, King of Marvin Gardens. BBS produced uh, Peter Bogdanovich's Last Picture Show. And they end up selling to uh, Columbia at the end of 1971. Rafelson made five movies with Jack Nicholson. Postman Always Rings Twice, the remake of that in 1981. Man Trouble in 1991 and the last one Blood and Wine which has Jack and uh, J-Lo of all people and I don't think Ravelson made a movie for like 20 years now I think he's right. kind of done he's like an old man uh, God he's got to be in his 80s mm-hmm. he was one of the new Hollywood guys at the time that group of filmmakers coming out of Hollywood in the late 60s early 70s guys like Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas Martin Scorsese Brian De Palma those kind of guys he was kind of a, an auteur for a while he didn't really make that many movies. That's it. That's head for what it is. I think. Uh,
1: I've grown to appreciate it quite I a say, bit. I think
0: you liked it a lot more than I did.
1: And, and I will, I will confess when I, the first time I saw it would have been in the late 80s as a. Oh, you would have had no interest. Young, young teen, just, you know, as, as I was in all about the monkeys at the time. But yeah, the first time I saw it was very much, what the hell was that? Yeah. That I didn't get it and and thought it was weird, and just like anybody else would have even in 68 when it first came out as as a fan.
0: Yeah, then you smoke a couple pounds of Hawaiian hash, (laughs) and then you're like, dude, this movie's fucking awesome. It it really
1: is, I think, one of those things that you watch repeatedly, and you give it a second or third look that you start to maybe have a better appreciation for it, especially with with the music as a fan, enjoying the the songs that are in this.
0: All right, so numbers-wise, what are you going to give this one?
1: It's going to be really skewed because as a monkeys fan, I'm going to rate it higher because I'm going to enjoy it in a way as a fan that the casual viewer is not. So, you know, I might give it like a seven, seven and a half. But when you step away and don't look at it through that kind of rose-colored glass and really just look at it on its head as that, That's what I'm going a to movie. do. So
0: you go ahead and give it the rating you want to give it and then I'll shit all over it
1: <laughs> It really does have some cool stuff that, that even though 2001 came out earlier in the year... And really did, you know, for the first time, some of the the solarization with the film and and some of that stuff that they really, you know, arguably overdid here. There are some fun things about this movie that at the time would have been kind of groundbreaking and and new and and fun. That Oh, hey, no one else is doing this. This is cutting edge kind of stuff. Through that counterculture hippie kind of lens, you know, it was of the era as it was. So, I mean... But it is damn weird. So, depending on how I kind of wanted to look, you know, I'd give it a five, maybe a six. The
0: reason that not many people were doing that kind of stuff, there were 16,111 reasons <laughs> that nobody was doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> For me, it's one of those things because I'm not a Big Monkeys fan. I mean, I know they got some nice songs and all that, but just seeing this as a, as a movie and just how painful it is to watch and how <laughs> obtuse, willingly obtuse the movie is being.
1: It's, a, it's an art house film. It's, it, it's fighting you. Yeah, it's not they sit down and casually watch. It's not a popcorn it's movie. It's not a fun movie to watch. Yeah. It
0: really isn't. That's one of those things where I'm thinking about other ratings I've done, and I'm like, I would say a three, but I gave Con Air a three. And if you put these two movies in front <laughs> of me and say, which one do you want to watch? It's Friday night. Dude, I'm picking Con Air. Would you give Battlefield Earth? A one. Okay. Battlefield Earth is the drizzling shits. It is the lowest of the low. This, so this is better than Battlefield Earth? I could film myself taking a shit and that would be better than Battlefield <laughs> Earth, or at least as bad. <laughs> if you put Con Air and Head in front of me and said, pick one, we're watching on Friday night, it's going to be Con Air because it's a stupid movie. It's a dumb action movie, but at least you can laugh at yes. it Yes. and it's It's a popcorn film.
1: It, it's a sit down. Yeah. Watch stuff blow up. So you know, for this, I'm going to have raster. to go
0: with like a two and a half because I wouldn't enjoy it more in Con Air. You get a couple points because, you know, the music's good and there is some creativity there. But God damn, is it painful to watch. And Battlefield Earth is painful to watch too. But you can laugh at Battlefield Earth at just how inept it is. And this isn't on that same level of fun inept. They could have done something more with this. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. They could have made a much better movie. And that's why for me it's so low.
1: I think they made the movie they wanted to make. Oh
0: yeah, they did what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill the monkey. <laughs> they did and not they like succeeded.
1: set the bar so high and then not achieve what they set out to do. I nope. think they absolutely made exactly the movie they intended to make.
0: They made sure their head was in the guillotine before they dropped the blade. They did that. <laughs> they certainly did. Okay, faggot. What's next? What well, we got coming up next? I want to do a movie that we'd both seen and had kind of opposing views on. I'm interested in doing a review of the 1988 remake of the blob one of the uh, 80s trilogy of 50s movies getting remade with a hard r rating and lots of gross out special effects
1: this is going to become like a back and forth who can outdo the other in terms of torture of sitting through something that not necessarily what is this crap (laughs) i think if you watch
0: it again you'll find some stuff to appreciate in that movie all right the first time you saw it, we had the movie marathon going on. I had a whole kitchen full of twenty somethings from the theater up there sitting around bullshitting, rather than sitting down here and watching the movie because I was trying to cook hamburgers or whatever. And uh, you were the only one down here to sitting here munching popcorn, going, "Oh my god, this sucks." <laughs> <laughs> so I think in a different setting, maybe you'll maybe I'll have a you'll a finer see that appreciation. It's, it's different. And if not, that'd be interesting too, because then we can kind of bounce things the other way and right. and see what's going on. It's certainly not a perfect movie, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. Okay, if not, then we'll do cool as ice and really you want to be tortured. We could really do the torture thing. If you want that, I don't know. We'll pick one of those. So whichever it is, join us next time as we tear through this and I got to figure out how to cut down another two hour long audio form into something manageable. Once again, I am G money clip. He is Thornton Mellon and we're going to get out of here. So kick back, have some popcorn, watch some movies. Adios nachos.